Welcome to the Human Rights Pulse podcast, where we speak to leading human rights defenders around the world. Today, we have the privilege of speaking to Philip Worthington, the Managing Director of European Lawyers in Lesbos, the organization providing crucial legal assistance to asylum seekers on the islands of Lesbos in Samos and mainland Athens in Greece. Thousands continue to arrive into Greece after fleeing conflict and persecution in their home countries, primarily Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Many are forced to live in overcrowded and dangerous conditions as they wait months for their asylum cases to be heard. Further, the last year has brought catastrophic challenges with the pandemic and then fires tore through the largest camp on Lesbos, Moria, in September 2020, taking with it Philip's offices and leaving 13,000 without shelter. We will hear about all of this in a moment, but first, Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. It's, it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to speak to you today. Thanks, Philip. So I would, I would like us to start, if you will, by, by setting out why European Lawyers in Lesbos needs to exist. You know, despite thousands going through this asylum legal process on the islands, there are no or there are minimal state-provided legal services to assist them. So tell us about this and, and tell us what these individuals risk without accessing your services. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think you you used the, the, the absolute key word there, uh, need to exist. Um, we think we, we would like it if we didn't exist. We mm. don't think we should exist. We think this is something that um, should be done by the state. It should be provided by the state. Um, and I suppose to, to explain that and explain a little bit about the situation, you know, it, it is necessary to go back um, more than five years to March 2016, mm -hmm. when um, after a period whereby um, there were there were a, a huge number of arrivals to the Greek Aegean Islands, um, and those individuals transited through the islands. They transited through, then transited through uh, to, to Athens, through Greece, and with the aim of getting to, to other European countries. Mm -hmm. The EU-Turkey deal then happened in March 2016. And that completely changed the situation. It changed it into a legal crisis. So then the people who were there and, and the people who have arrived since have all been forced to stay in Greece and apply for asylum in Greece. Mm. Um, and this is why you've seen the large numbers of, of people um, in the camps and in other settings um, on the islands and in the mainland. And everybody is going through the asylum procedure. Uh, the asylum procedure is fundamentally a legal process. Um, but unfortunately, the um, Greek state does not provide any um, legal assistance or, or information um, at, the, at the first crucial stage of the process. Mm -hmm. So people don't get access to a lawyer from the state before their asylum interview. It only becomes available at the appeal process. Um, now, the, the, the thing is about that is that it, um, it, it puts things upside down, I think, because um, it's the beginning of the procedure that access to legal assistance and information is so critical yeah. um, because people begin the procedure and they're not aware of their rights and their obligations. They don't understand what the asylum procedure is. Um, they don't 
you know, know what it involves, what the criteria are for, for many people. And I should say, through, of course, through absolutely no fault of their own, um, they think it's a purely bureaucratic or administrative pr- procedure, mm. um, not a not a legal one. Mm. And it's so easy for people to inadvertently make a mistake. And mm. you know, if you just uh, let me just give a brief example of this, which really illustrated to me um, the, the value of legal assistance in this particular um, environment um, because yeah, I am myself a lawyer but you know it, this was something that really illustrated it to me which was um, in uh, mid-2016 when we'd been um, operating for, for a few months uh, uh, somebody came to me in Moria on Lesvos and um, he, he'd actually already done his interview so there was nothing really we could do to um, assist at that stage but we got we got chatting we got talking and um you know I said okay so um how was your interview uh and he said it, it was great went really well um I explained to them that um I was a truck driver back uh, back home in Iraq and if they gave me the opportunity then I would become the best truck driver in Greece I'd earn loads of money and pay loads of taxes mm-hmm. and be a, a you know upstanding member of Greek society and I said, okay, but why did you actually leave Iraq? And he said, well, because I'm from a religious minority and a a militia killed my family. And so I said, well, did you mention that? He said, no, of course not. I don't want them to think that I'm going to be uh, a vulnerable individual. I'm going to be a burden. I'm going to be, you know, somehow difficult or, you know, something, um, somebody who who won't be able to contribute. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that from, if, if you knew nothing about asylum law, then what he said made complete sense. And yeah. really, you know, I completely understood it. But from an asylum law perspective, it was the worst thing he could have said because um, he had not actually, you know, he basically admitted or said that he was an economic migrant and yet had very good grounds for a claim. Um, but then by not knowing the procedure, not knowing his, you know, what, what the procedure involved, um, he hadn't disclosed it. And when he then tried to, um, explain this and disclose it at the appeal stage. The caseworker said, "Well, if that was the reason, sure, you would have said it in your first interview. You know, we don't believe you." Mm-hmm. Um, and it just illustrates that the uh, fundamental importance mm-hmm. um, of having access to uh, legal assistance right from the beginning. Um, and you know, we as an organisation, as a rule of law, human rights organisation, believe that access to a lawyer is a fundamental right, um, and that. It should be provided to everybody um, as, you know, in the same way that medical care is, is you know, adequate housing, adequate, um, you know, wash facilities. It, it should be a right um, in the same way, mm-hmm. particularly um, in uh, in the asylum procedure. And so what we what we did um, was back in 2016, after the EU Turkey deal, we set up an organization whereby um, it's it, it aims to bridge this gap. So. Mm-hmm. Um, we have teams that are combined teams of full-time Greek asylum lawyers and um, volunteer European asylum lawyers, plus um, support from non-specialist lawyers and, and, and junior trainee lawyers, mm. um, all with the aim of trying to give everybody the opportunity to, to speak to a lawyer and have a proper legal consultation with an expert mm. before their interview, simply you know, to actually ensure that uh, accidental mistakes like that don't happen and that people are in a position to be able to articulate their claim 
in a way that actually reflects their need. Absolutely, and and in a way that actually um, accords with the asylum law, so that um, so that they're not continuing on the back foot for for what is a crucial process for for them and their families and and their future. And I think the fact that that you have you know assisted how, how many is it eleven thousand, twelve thousand asylum seekers over the last several years. Yeah, it's it's a bit over twelve thousand now, yeah. um, in, in across the three settings. Yeah, and, and that just indicates the extent of the need. And and I, I accord with you. I wish, I wish you didn't need to exist, but but thank goodness you do. Um, so let's let's turn to the asylum seekers' journey to these islands because all of this this extremely difficult process comes in the context of an extremely difficult journey. You know, they've they've escaped persecution uh, like you like in in your in your example there war conflict or, you know often their families and friends have lost their lives um and and it's a treacherous journey we've all seen the images of of those in in the rubber boats coming across to to safer land so so once these men and women and children manage to flee their home countries what kind of conditions await them in these camps well, um, as you mentioned earlier, and as you know, people will have seen from the from the, the news reports, um, the the conditions in the camp are are you know very poor. Um, the all of the camps, for the the original Moria, and um, you know, after the, the 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 fire which destroyed the camp, the new camp, um, they're all um, intended to be temporary, and um, in that nature. Um, the capacity is quite low and um, facilities uh, such as, um, you know, uh, toilet facilities and, 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 and um, shelter are, are not adequate. Um, at the moment in the new, um, uh, the new camp on Lesvos, it's, it's all tents. Um, in Moria previously, it was a mixture between tents and uh, um, kind of more um, you know, like shelters uh, that were, were slightly more permanent containers effectively. Um, and I think that, um, you know, what you mentioned about the journey is very, very relevant because um, in two ways. First of all, I think that, um, you know, the European Union uh, has, has an obligation to provide uh, a fair um, and um, you know, suitable process mm. with sufficient support for people in any event. Yes. But even, you know, this is even more pronounced for people who have, as you say, gone through such a, a trauma, traumatic and dangerous journey. Mm. And the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that um, there is often a, a discussion about um, your kind of push and pull factors um, mm. as to why people leave their country. And I mean, it always strikes me that people would not take that journey um, it, it's not a journey you take lightly no. in the sense that people would only risk their lives knowing how risky it is um, mm. if there was a very good reason to do so. Mm. So um, I think that, you know, in that situation, the very least that can be provided is a is a humane, robust, rigorous, fair procedure um, that actually um, analyzes people's uh, cases um, in detail. And the... The challenge that we have at the moment, uh, one of well, one of a number of challenges, is that um, the procedure is incredibly quick. So it used to be up to the end of um, 
2019 that the uh, procedure was very, very slow. So it would take, on average, two years between arrival and decision. So that's two years of living in somewhere like Moria. And just to um, clarify, a decision is not necessarily being sent to a beautiful new life somewhere. That's that's just a decision about the outcome of the case. That's not actually moving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and and it could be a rejection. Um, mm-hmm. In you know. Uh, more than 50% of the cases, the decision is actually a rejection. So you've waited two years and then been rejected and, and then go to the appeal stage with the prospect of them being returned to Turkey. And absolutely, for the people who get a positive decision, the there is no real support. Um, first of all, they have to stay in Greece. And secondly, there's no real support from the uh, uh, from, from, from any um, you know, authorities to actually... Um, you know, provide um, a, a, a humane um, situation for them. Mm. So yes, that's a very good point. Um, but the uh, the situation now is that it's gone the complete opposite extreme. So um, now it is we, we have cases at the moment who will um, have their interview and their decision within two weeks of arriving. Yeah. And what that means is, in many cases, so that people get notice of their interview um, 24 hours or 48 hours in advance. That's it. So it's very normal for somebody to be told, uh, you know, lunchtime on a Tuesday, your interview is Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that is, you know, very problematic in many ways, but in terms of legal assistance, it's then almost impossible for somebody to then go and find a lawyer in less than 24 hours. So um, again, it, it kind of risks, uh, th- this focus on speed risks undermining the uh, the rule of law and the, the robustness of the procedure. Mm, mm, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, there's there's no way that, that you can have in any sort of legal system, there's no way that there's ad- adequate legal preparation available within within such a short period of time but there's just there's no two ways about it you once you're in the system you're you're kind of at its whim I suppose um I I'd like to ask about COVID-19 it's affected everybody differently but I can imagine that the effects are felt particularly acutely for the asylum seekers and uh indeed for your work um could you tell us more about what the last 18 months has been like in this respect for you Yes, absolutely. And I think there are maybe kind of three elements to this. There's the um, the reality in Greece generally and, and what that has been like. And so, um, you know, we've been under lockdown, as with most countries, for, for, for significant amounts of the last 18 months. And that is uh, applies to the camps as well. So it's been more difficult to access the camps and also um, more difficult for people to, to leave the camps and come to the uh, you come to the nearby towns and cities to, to access services. So access to service has been restricted. Um, the In terms of the legal procedure, um, there has been, uh, you know, as, as well as this uh, emphasis on speed, there has also been, um, particularly in Lesvos, um, a uh, increase in the remote element of the procedure. So um, it's now very frequent that the uh, asylum seeker, when they go to their interview, either the caseworker doing the interview or the interpreter or both will be remote. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously that has impacts on the on 
how the interview is conducted and uh, it, it's much more difficult to do something like that um, when you're speaking to a screen rather than a person particularly because you know the asylum cases more than you know more than anything is completely personal and often relates to very very traumatic uh, experiences and information and people have to be comfortable Mm. To, to be even possibly able to, to explain what happened to them. So being in a room, you know, in, in a small room with, with, with nobody else with you, um, you know, with, you know, the windows open maybe to comply with COVID-19 protocols. So maybe you're worried that other people can hear you, things like this. Mm. It all uh, undermines, I think, the, uh, can, can risk undermining the procedure. Um, from our perspective, so I suppose the third element is the impact on our organisation. Um, well, the impact was very great because our entire model was based on um, having the in-person Greek lawyers and then having European asylum lawyers volunteering and coming out to Greece um, to assist in person. Mm. So clearly with the travel restrictions, um, that we had to change our, our, our model and with the uh, lockdown uh, provisions and the restrictions on working in the office at certain times and things, we, again, that made us have to, have to change the model. So what we, what we did is that we tried to adapt by continuing to have the, the Greek lawyers um, in, uh, and the interpreters in person, but then to have um, a team of about 15 uh, European volunteer asylum lawyers who would assist remotely. So they do it from home. Um, this was something that we were, uh, to be honest, extremely sceptical about. Um, we wouldn't have done it unless we were forced to do it, yeah. uh, but we had no choice ultimately. Mm. And uh, much to, uh, uh, um, you know, I guess lawyers, you know, as a whole are quite a conservative bunch when it comes to things like technology. So um, uh, we were, we've been pleasantly surprised because it has worked much better than we ever envisaged. Um, and it has enabled us to continue to operate and, and actually enable us to, con to, to, to increase our capacity despite um, the travel restrictions. And, and it, it, after the initial you know, getting used to it, it, it works quite well because people as well can fit it around their schedule. So um, we have, you know, We've invested a little bit in, in technology to make sure that it's kind of as near as possible to an in-person uh, um, uh, consultation. And you know, we we always make sure that people come to the to the office. The interpreter is there in person, so there is some per, you know human contact there, and they're in a, a confidential, safe space where they you know feel I hope comfortable. Um, and the only difference is is that the lawyer is is on a screen rather than in person. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that has was it was a, a very big adaptation for us. And I think it's well, I, I'm sure that it's something that we will carry on even you know as as things maybe begin to get a little bit back to normal um, with COVID nineteen. Look, and and I'm I'm so I'm glad to hear that, but I think it's a, a testament to to your ability to be adaptable and continue to provide these these critical services regardless of the uh the challenges that are thrown in your way but but that's it's not the only challenge that you've been facing uh there was the fire in moria and and your offices were were, were burned down to the ground is that right yes um yes absolutely and that was uh i mean 
it was a obviously a very shocking um, uh, event, and as indeed were the events afterwards, as as you mentioned, that um, thirteen thousand people uh, being on the street um, afterwards for for you know a week or so whilst new temporary accommodation was 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 put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was again something that we needed to adapt to because we had been our model was based on being in the camp so the office was uh was in a place called the olive grove which was just a a kind of an overflow part from the camp so just right next to the camp so people could come and see us freely um and now that's not possible uh, because there's no suitable space there's no suitable confidential space in the new camp um, for lawyers to operate, so it means that now everybody has to come uh, to us in in the nearby town, which um, of course restricts access too. Um, so it, it's kind of a constant battle to try and ensure that we're adapting to maximise the the possibility of um, uh, of people accessing us. Because for us, the most frustrating thing is when. Um, there is somebody who who goes through the procedure and is not able to speak to a lawyer. Um, and that might be because they don't know the value of, of or the importance of, of, of having a lawyer before their interview because they don't understand necessarily what the procedure involves. And then it's, it's heartbreaking for us when somebody then afterwards says, oh, I wish I'd known. And then I would have spoken to a lawyer beforehand because, you know, as I mentioned with the previous example, what you say in your first interview, actually calling it a first interview is wrong. It's it's the only interview. Yeah. What people say in that decides their case from all the way up, you know, if it went up to the European Court of Human Rights, it would still revolve around what was said in that first interview. Yeah. And it's just madness that there, that there isn't better provision around that because, you know the what's at stake is is someone's future and the future of the family and and so I can I can imagine that 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 would be entirely heartbreaking when when you're in a position to assist and and doing the best you can but it seems that uh challenges are just popping up um popping up everywhere along the road that that what you just said links links to a, a question I'd like to ask about um uh you know the one of the key pillars of refugee mm. law that you that you will not be sent back to a country in which your life would be in danger. And I'm interested to, to know whether this is being upheld uh, in these in these areas. Um, well, I think that's a, uh, it, it's a very important question. And um, as you say, it, it's something um, that principle is, is, you know, at the bedrock of, of asylum law kind of the entire concept of asylum law um what uh there are two things to mention in this regard i mean there have been uh, significant reports in the last 18 months of pushbacks from um uh, greek territorial waters back into turkish waters and um, there is various investigations and, 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 and cases at the moment about that of people being pushed back from uh from the the sea and indeed the islands of, of Lesbos and Samos back to Turkey. Um, I know that there's an investigation, I think, by the European Parliament um, uh, about Frontex's role in this. So there is definitely uh, an issue there, which has coincided with a, a significant decrease in um, arrivals to Greece in the last 18 months. Um, and 
The other issue uh, in this regard is um, about the new joint ministerial decision, which was um, issued at the beginning of June. And what this is, is basically a decision um, of the Greek authorities, the Greek state, that Turkey is a safe third country for people from um, of nationality, people from the nationality of Syria, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Somalia. So people from these countries, when they arrive in Greece, and actually I should say as well, it applies both to new arrivals and retrospectively to people who arrived previously. It means that when they go to their interview, they're not asked about the, the situation in their country of origin. Mm. They're asked about the situation for them in Turkey, with the assumption being that Turkey is safe for them. And this um, goes to the principle of asylum law, which is that people's case should be heard in the first safe country of arrival. Wow. So if Greece says, well, actually, Turkey is safe for them, then that means that their asylum claim should be heard in Turkey. Now, this is, I think, very problematic for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, there is a um, there is a, a protection available, so-called temporary protection available for Syrians in Turkey. Um, but this is a very, uh, I think, um, it's, it's inaccessible uh, for, for many people, and, and it by the by the very title of it, it's temporary. It could be revoked at any time. Um, but it, it is at least technically available. But mm. for people from Afghanistan and Somalia and Pakistan uh, um, and Bangladesh, there is no such protection available. So actually, if they were to be returned to Turkey, they couldn't apply for protection in, in real terms, Not at least not uh, you know, a protection, refugee protection under the Geneva Convention. The other thing is that what this means is that people from those nationalities are not actually being um, given the opportunity to explain why they fled their home country. So a Syrian would not be asked, what happened to you in Syria? They would just be asked, what happened to you in Turkey? Same with somebody from Afghanistan. And, you know, given, you know, as you, know, we've, you everyone will have seen the news about the situation in Afghanistan following the pullout, Obviously, that is of extreme importance and relevance. But what has happened is that a situation has been created whereby actually the European Union, um, mm. it, people arriving into the European Union are not actually allowed or given the opportunity to set out the, their, their claim and, and explain why they fled their, their home country, um, which I think is a very it's a very dangerous precedent. And it's a very serious issue in, in terms of, of rule of law, uh, mm. because, you know, I, I believe that anybody arriving into Europe should be given as a minimum the opportunity to, to actually explain why they have fled. Mm. While you're talking, Philip, I'm, I'm confronted by the sense that that after fleeing conflict and often escaping being killed and, and finally reaching the point to apply for asylum, it's still incredibly lucky to be accepted, you know, for flaws of, of administration and frankly, abuses of rule of law. It just seems like such a, such a broken system. And, and it's infuriating to hear about all the, all the ways that, that people who, who just deserve a, a safe future can, can slip through the, 
the the cracks. I I'd like to just ask about one more particularly vul, vulnerable group: um, children. There, there must be unaccompanied minors who arrive to these islands, and and I'm interested. Do they have to go through the same process? Is it the same interview for them? Um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are large numbers of unaccompanied children in the uh, who arrive and then go through the procedure. Um, when the fire in Moria happened, there was over 500 unaccompanied children um, in the camp who were then relocated, and many of whom have been relocated to other European countries. Um, there are large numbers of unaccompanied children uh, across Greece in the procedure. Um, there is also uh, even, you know, equally or perhaps even more uh, significantly, um, uh, the uh, children who have been um, registered as adults. Yeah. So um, what happens quite often is that, um, you know, when people arrive, they don't have any papers. Yeah. So um, there is an initial registration process where people give their name and, and, and their date of birth and everything. And what can happen is that um, people are, uh, children are registered as adults mm -hmm. and treated as adults, or they go through an age assessment procedure um, of some sort, which um, uh, then assesses them as adults. And, and the result of that is very problematic in, in two ways. First of all, it means that in kind of practical terms, they are in the camps with the adult population, which as you can imagine is a, um, a, a very serious protection risk Absolutely. also it means that they go through the uh, legal procedure as adults which has you know, it, it's a in principle it's the same procedure um, but ultimately there are far more protections in place for for children and uh, you know there, there are different uh different considerations different standards applied uh, to a, a child applying um, for asylum versus an adult um, and you know they'll be put in different shelters or different accommodation and um, be given different support so it's a very very important um, uh, consideration and one thing that I would say is that you know we've done a lot of these um, age assessment cases you know uh, more than 400 um, since we since we began and actually in 62.6% of those cases, the initial assessment of the individual as an adult was wrong. Oh. So it's been overturned in more than 60% of, of the cases that we've worked on. So again, this is a very uh, concerning issue. And, and as you say, something that can be uh, a, a, a way in which people are um, kind of get can be can be lost in the system or have their rights denied because for example um family reunification is something that is uh much uh much easier if the individual is a is a minor than if they're an, an adult so uh, a child an unaccompanied child um could be reunited with their parents in you know another european country but actually if that individual was considered to be 18 or above it becomes much, much more difficult. So again, as well as the protection risks and the, the legal risks, there's also a denial of rights um, in, in that regard. Mm. This is a really dire situation, the, the whole thing. So you, you spoke about the EU before. Where is the EU in all this? What needs to change? Is it a political solution? Well, I think that the critical thing to remember in all of this is that 
this is not a Greek issue. This is a European issue. Yes. Um, this is not something that um, Greece should be um, you, you should be working on alone. Um, this is something that the entirety of Europe should be involved in to find a uh, sustainable, humane and um, uh, solution that's in compliance with human rights and, and the rule of law. Mm. And um, I think that there are, you know, there are a variety of different mechanisms for that. Um, but I think the, the the critical thing is is something in terms of um, solidarity and, and recognition of this um, of this issue. Um, and you know, we, along with many many other uh, organisations, have been pushing for relocation of of people um, out of Greece into other European countries because the truth of the matter is that the numbers involved. Are incredibly small. Mm. Um, they are, you know, proportionately for uh, an island like Lesbos or, or even for a country like Greece. Okay, they're they're a bit higher, but across the entirety of the European Union, mm. the, it's fractionally small. There's maybe 150,000 or so um, asylum seekers in Greece, which spread across the entirety of the European Union is is nothing, mm. and. Um, you know, I remember speaking to um, a Swedish person in Moria, and he said that actually he was kind of working with the authorities. And he said, well, you know, the situation here in the camp is is terrible. And, and then, you know, it's unbelievable that everybody has to stay here because actually if the 20,000 people in Moria were divided up into all the municipalities in Sweden, just Sweden, only be five people per Swedish municipality. Mm. And that illustrates how actually comparatively tiny the numbers are, yet they have such a huge political impact. And I think, you know, it's completely disproportionate. And actually that political impact is what prevents uh, a solution being found because everybody on every put almost um, every political uh, party and on, on most elements of the political spectrum, there is, a, I think, a, a concern about being seen to, to, to advocate for relocation or something like that because of the, of the backlash that there may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, it, there is, there is a, a political um, um, solution that needs to be found to, to enable a fair uh, process to be put in place, and, and that's um, you know, dependent on things like relocation, dependent upon, on more support. It's dependent on, uh, you know, in, ensuring that people have access to proper services. Mm-hmm. But I think the other element, which is maybe something um, beyond the political, um, which is something that I think affects the entire population, um, is to not let this issue be forgotten about. Absolutely. Um, I I remember when I first arrived in Moria in January 2016, and I was I was just a volunteer then. I was giving out you know food and water and, and tents and clothes and, and things. And I I gave a tent to a family. And then um, a few hours later, when I was leaving in, in, in the middle of the night, and I was driving out to the camp, and I saw them putting the tent up. Um, in the camp. And I thought to myself, you know, it's January, it's cold. And I think it's just unbelievable that in Europe, a family 
who's come to claim asylum has to spend one night in a tent in the cold. And I often think back to that because you know, I now know people who've spent two or three years living those conditions. Mm. And it, it strikes me that what was shocking back in early 2016 is now totally normalized. Mm. It's something that we, as the you know, citizens of, of the European Union, citizens of Europe, have said, well, actually, this is something that we are okay with. This is something that is is now normalised, and I think that that is uh, is quite shocking, um, because this situation was unthinkable five years ago. Yet here we are with it. So I think that it's uh, kind of inherent on everybody to make sure that um, it's it's not forgotten about. And, and people often, my friends and family, often say to me, "Phil, why are you still on Lesbos? That issue was solved years ago." And so actually, it's worse than it ever has been. Mm. Just the fact that it's not in the newspapers every day mm. doesn't mean the the problem has gone away. So I think to keep that conversation going and to keep people's awareness um, up about it is of, of fundamental importance. Absolutely. And that indicates, I mean, that goes to the, the, the misinformation perhaps about, about it in the news or the lack of information. And, and unfortunately, the longer that there is political disagreement about it, the more normalized it will become as, as more time passes. So, so yeah, it's, it's extremely concerning. So you've, you've just talked about uh, everything that needs to happen. Um, Philip, are you optimistic about the future? Um, well, I think that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm not sure I am particularly optimistic about the future um, in, in this regard, because um, the trajectory over the last four and a half years has actually been um, one of constant erosion of uh, legal safeguards, access to legal assistance, uh, the robustness of the process uh, and uh, the uh, the rule of law. So um, I, right now, I'm not very um, optimistic about the situation. Um, and there is the new proposed um, uh, EU asylum pact, which um, it proposes in, in its current draft form to, to codify some of the concerning elements um, of the procedure that we've seen um, on Lesbos and in Greece, particularly the the emphasis on speed, would be uh, would be actually enshrined in in the new law, and um, along with other concerning uh, uh, provisions in terms of um, pre-screening uh, aspects and, and fact procedures for people from countries of lower um, threshold recognition rates, all of which I think go against the fundamental principle, which is that everybody should have their own case heard individually on a case-by-case basis. Mm. Um, And so in that regard, the outlook is not very um, positive. And I think there is a, it feels like we are constantly fighting against um, this uh, erosion and and threats to the um, the rule of law um, and and the safeguards rather than, you know, trying to make progress towards um, improving those those aspects so it feels like a defensive um uh, uh thing at the moment um on the flip side it's you know there is always of course um causes for hope and, and positivity and, and you know i after five years um five and a half years of being involved um uh, in greece on lesbos that it still 
um, never ceases to amaze me um, how many people come um, to volunteer, how many people support, continue to support, how many people continue to do advocacy and, and, and fight against um, these things, and um, indeed how many lawyers continue to volunteer um, for, for our organisation. We always have far more lawyers volunteer than we can take on. Mm. And I mean, we've had over 250 volunteers already, and we could easily have had 750 given the um, given the number of applications. So um, in that regard, you know, there's always ca causes to be um, hopeful. Um, equally, I, I, I think it's another cause for, for hope maybe is that, you know, there is evidence that um, access to a lawyer can make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the, the average recognition rate in Greece um, is 46.5%, and the recognition rate of the cases that we have assisted is 74.5%. So it illustrates this, there is a big difference if people um, have access to a lawyer. So it's, and what I mean by that is it's a clear, uh, it's clearly something that has a benefit and works. So it's then a case of trying to um, expand that, uh, increase the access to lawyers, and at the same time pressurise uh, the, the government and the European Union to actually make this part of the procedure so that everybody gets access to a lawyer as part of, um, uh, uh, through legal aid, just a, 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 as, as normal part of the procedure. Mm -hmm. So um, in that regard, there is there are um, there are some aspects of hope, but um, yeah, that overall, right now the 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 situation is is looking a little bit um, pessimistic, which I think is all the more reason why it's very very important to continue to raise awareness about this, continue to have conversations about it, continue to put political pressure on 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 uh, the 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 leaders of the of the countries and on the EU generally, and um, to ensure that this issue doesn't get forgotten about and doesn't just become normalized. Mm. Um, because then once it is normalized, it's very, very difficult to challenge. Mm. So um, I think that it's it's critical to keep that conversation uh, going at all times, despite, of course, the numerous other issues going on at the moment. And, you know, of course, they can't be ignored. But this continues to be a very serious issue. Absolutely. And and that links to my, my final question is is that we we reach human rights defenders around the world and everyone is uh, an advocate in their own area. Um, but there are a lot of people who want to help. So, so you've just spoken about um, uh, raising awareness and putting political pressure on and and also volunteer asylum uh, asylum supporters. So what can we do, essentially, is what I'm asking. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that there are there are three main things, as I mentioned uh, just now, the, the the having those conversations and, and doing that that advocacy. That, as you say, everybody um, can uh, uh, do advocacy in in their own way and amongst their own uh, groups. the The second thing is um, that you know, we're always delighted to welcome applications for people to volunteer with us. Um, and uh, information about that is available on our website, which is www.elil.eu. Um, and there's you know information there as to how people can apply to volunteer. And then the third thing, you know, like all um, uh, 
volunteer-based organisations, you know, we're we're reliant um, on donations and uh, from from the public as well as um, grants from from other organisations. So, uh, you know, uh, there is uh, information on the on the website for anybody who might be interested in in donating as well. Um, so, on I think they're the the three main ways. And um, you know, if anybody would like more information about the organisation, then uh, you know, visiting the website would be the uh, would be the first place to go. And then if you have more questions, then um, my email address is on the website and people are very, very welcome to, to reach out to me uh, for more information. Perfect. And and we will put all of these details in the show notes of, of this episode as well. So on that note, right. Philip, thank you so, so much for taking the time and and sharing so generously your your insights and and your experience. And and thank you for the work you do. The world's the world's much better from it. And I wish you all the best with with everything coming ahead. Mm-hmm.